So if I do a division, what we find is if I do a division that gives me 99% and gives you 1%, well, you're better off taking the 1%, right? That's better than nothing. You go, no, that's not fair. I'm not going to take that. People clearly care about fairness, and they're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to take less for a situation that they think, you know, to avoid a situation that they think is unfair. And, you know, given the way economists would like people to act, that shouldn't be the case. They shouldn't be, we shouldn't be seeing that. But we do see it, and we see it again and again and again. So we see it theoretically, but it also, I think, corresponds, well, it corresponds, I'll just say, to my understanding of how people behave. So I wasn't surprised when I heard the, you know, first read the results of that experiment. But, uh, you know, that does go against what economic theory says people should behave. So it's really a kind of fundamental underpinning, this, this rational economic man that underlies the discussions of, quote, free markets, a term I also don't like, and we'll get to that in a second, it really undermines the notion that we can solve this through market methods? Well, it certainly makes it much, much more complex, because that's right. If people aren't sort of narrow maximizers the way economists would like them to be, then you're suddenly in a much more complex world. So, you know, just to take the case I was talking about, if my well-being depends on your well-being or the basket of goods you have, and I don't mean just in jealousy sense. I mean, maybe it does, but let's just say uh, l let's say that I don't have a card. We go back to 1950. That's before I was born, so it's not a particular fondness in 1950. I'm just making a point. I don't have a car. No one else has a car. Well, odds are when my friends go out and do things, they don't plan to drive because none of them have cars. Now it's 2013 and everyone's got a car. So they go, oh, let's go to the beach. Well, suddenly that's a problem for me. I mean, maybe I can get someone to take me, but that puts me at a disadvantage. I'm definitely worse off. So we have a situation where people's well-being depends on society and others rather than just sort of this simple, narrow, you know, what, what's the basket of goods I have, then it becomes very hard to talk about when are people necessarily better off versus when they're worse off. Now, the second fundamental thing that we learn about when we study economics is um, the theory of the firm. And the theory of the firm starts off by talking about perfect competition and the idea that decisions are made at the margins, that the margin you set price equal to marginal cost, which equals marginal revenue, and that's a market clearing, and that's all good. But the trouble is that even in even in the textbooks you were reading 20 or 30 years ago, you spend a lot of time talking about situations where that doesn't happen. Yeah, and, you know, you have this notion of perfect competition, which applies, you know, best, I mean, and most economists will acknowledge this, at best perhaps in agriculture, where, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of producers, and, you know, they can't, uh, even the biggest wheat farmer can't think that he or she's going to influence the price of wheat with, you know, how much they put on the market. But that's really the exception. And, you know, in the vast majority of industries that we're looking at, we're looking at forms of monopoly, oligopoly. Um, clearly, firms have a great deal of market power. And that's really uh, what we have to talk about when we talk about the economy. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's a logic to this in the sense that when you have a big firm with market power, that gives them an incentive to spend money on research and development that they, they may not have if they're a perfectly competitive farm, you know. The case of the case I was just talking about, you're a wheat farmer, one of hundreds of thousands. It doesn't make a lot of sense for you to figure out a better way to produce wheat because as soon as you have that, everyone else is going to have that. You'll spend a lot of money, and you know you'll get nothing from that. So, so the fact that you have market power in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It just means that you know we have to look at these markets in a very different way. Well, it makes the role of government seem a lot more important and essential and not easy to get rid of. I mean, even in the wheat market, you need to have some government regulation um, to determine, to make sure that people are selling what they say they're selling and the people who are weighing it are actually weighing the amount that they're supposed to be weighing. There's still a need for regulatory authority to keep that market going. And that's a perfect example of perfect competition in that the large number of producers are selling a commodity good that can't easily be differentiated. Unlike oil, which has a commodity good that can't easily be differentiated, but there are only a few producers. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And where you have considerable market power, which again is most markets, then you know the point you have to understand is that absent some sort of government intervention, firms will naturally try to exploit that. So Microsoft with you know, a near monopoly on operating systems they could jack up their prices absent government invention. They will charge, you know, they're, they're, they'll, they'll charge obviously way more than what their cost of productions are. And you see this just about everywhere where you have very limited competition. I was sort of struck, um, I hope this isn't too much of a digression, I was sort of struck when uh, Al Gore sold off his TV network, Current TV, to Al Jazeera for $500 million. The reason I was struck by that is current, uh, the reports were saying Al Jazeera didn't really want Current's broadcasting, so it wasn't that Al Gore had this 
you know, thriving network. It was quite the opposite. They, you know, according to the reports, they plan to dump all the broadcasting. Maybe they'll keep the show or something. But that, that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted its access to cable slots. And the reason why this was amazing to me is cable slots, the cost of Comcast or whoever it is setting up another cable slot is almost zero. So how could it be worth $500 million to buy the cable slots that, Al Gore's network had arranged with the cable networks. Well, the reason why is because the cable networks are strict assets. This is a clearly a failure of regulation. There should be no way on earth that Al Gore could have sold his cable slots for $500 million. I'm sorry to pick on Al Gore. It's something I think against him. I'm just trying to make well, a point here. He's fat anyway, so you can... Yeah, yeah, so he deserves it. But, but anyhow, that, that's my point here. It's clearly a failure of regulation that what you should have is we understand people aren't going to... We're not going to have 20 companies stringing cable line to my house. That doesn't make sense. We have one company that strings cable line to my house, and that company has enormous market power, and it's the government's responsibility to make sure they don't exploit that. You know, and this isn't new thinking. I mean, a lot of the wealth of nations consists of discussions of how government should prevent the acquisition of market power over both the selling market and over the buying of labor markets, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, Adam Smith was very cognizant of this. He has uh, some passage in the, the Wealth of Nations where he goes, it's rare that you get a group of business leaders together, this is paraphrasing, where they don't immediately talk about taking advantage of monopoly power. So, you know, he, he was a nice guy. He understood that. You get people together, they go, okay, how could we how could we take advantage of the fact that we're the three people selling clothes in this town? How can we take advantage of that fact? Yeah, and he also talks a lot about something that you write a lot about in The End of Loser Liberalism, which is a book you all should get, folks. It's available at the CEPR website. It's free, although you can, of course, give money to the CEPR. Um, but what you talk about there is guilds and their power, and that was something, too, that Adam Smith talks about a lot. And we see that in the Lawyers Guild and the Doctors Guild and the other forms of professionals who restrict competition from... Yeah, it, it, it's been amazing to me how little attention this gets from economists because, you know, there's this whole literature now saying that the reason why we have so many workers that are losers, you know, people working in manufacturing, retail trade, really most sectors of the economy, they end up being losers. And then you do have people at the very high end, and doctors are certainly uh, well represented among the top 1% or 2% lawyers as well. And they're doing very well, and, and, and economists look at that and go, well, you know, we've had changes in technology, globalization, and that's tended to favor, you know, these very highly educated professions. Okay, well, that may or may not be true, but one of the things we know is people cannot just become doctors. They cannot just become lawyers. We very much restrict access to those professions. We restrict people coming from other countries to practice those professions. We haven't done the same thing with those professions that we've done with manufacturing and other sectors of the economy where we've done everything we could to put our workers in direct competition with people who are very low paid in Mexico, in China, Malaysia, wherever it might be. We don't do that with our doctors and lawyers. So why is it any surprise to us that our doctors and lawyers are doing very well and our manufacturing workers, our retail workers are not? That's been conscious policy. We don't have to look for skills bias, technical change. Maybe that's been there, but the most obvious factor is doctors and lawyers uh, monopolize their profession and severely restrict competition. And that's not just from global sources. I mean, they also restrict competition from domestic sources. Uh, at this point, the process of filling a tooth is something a hygienist could do uh, without too much difficulty. It's, nursing could do a lot of things that doctors claim the sole right to do. Um, lawyers don't let paralegals into the courtroom. And those are all instances, especially, especially the legal profession, which is really a lot of boilerplate you know, with minor modifications, there's, there's not a lot, there's a lot of work that could be done by people who aren't stamped with the bar stamp. Exactly, exactly. This has been, you know, this is by virtue of the fact that these people are able to control their professions, control who gets to do what. Um, in both cases, in, in, in the case of doctors and lawyers, they literally get to control who practices, as a, who's certified as a doctor or lawyer. Imagine auto workers could do that. They could say, okay, we have the auto workers bar, and, you know, unless you do X, Y, and Z, we aren't going to let you, you pass it. You, aren't, you can't work as an auto worker. You know, naturally, they get a lot more money. And, and that's, in effect, what, what we do with doctors and lawyers. It's kind of like labor unions, in point of fact, except uh, not recognized as such. Well, in fact, much more effective because, again, it's not just that they're negotiating with the company. They'll have the government arrest you. You know, right. so if you're practicing medicine without a license, you go to jail. And, and it's not merely that these um, guilds exist. It's not merely that people try to to monopolize things. People also try to create instances where they can both create a monopoly, like by branding. One of the things that we're seeing in the last 15 years is that branding has become a really powerful force for 
uh, separating and otherwise indistinguishable commodities in ways that have really been on steroids since it was in 1950, say? Sure. You know, again, this is something that you, you have uh, a wide range of products where, you know, they might be outwardly indistinguishable to you or I, most consumers, but, you know, they want to, uh, companies try to establish a brand and, you know, use that obviously to, to raise their prices. Now, I will be fair to them because in some cases you do have companies that actually do make a point in maintaining quality. So there is something to be said that, you know, if you have a company that has a reputation for making a quality watch or, you know, whatever it might be, that they want to be able to say, okay, if, you know, this watch is called, you know, whatever, I'm not going to do a, um, a product placement here, but if it's called <laughs> whatever, you know, then you know it's a good watch because we only do good watches. So, so, so I am somewhat sympathetic to that, but very often um, it's a purely artificial distinction and they're, they're trying to create, you know, sort of a identity that uh, really isn't warranted. Well, the, th the thing I think of is Ben & Jerry's ice cream, for instance, which is a very clearly identified product niche, but it's owned by some large conglomerate. Likewise, Poland Spring Water is owned by Nestle, the uh, international conglomerate. That these brands are used as manipulative, and maybe it's still making the same water and still making the same ice cream, I don't know. But there's something dishonest in the way it's presented, and it's something that I think has become more so in, in that respect. Well, certainly a lot of people value buying, you know, sort of uh, local brands, uh, family brands, and very often uh, companies do take advantage of that. Uh, Sam Adams, for example, is produced by one of the big brewers, and, you know, that people think of this as a, uh, um, a niche brewery, and, and, and it's very much not. Um, uh, perhaps the best story, I should say, my favorite story about this Hagen Dazs. You know, it's, it's I think it was made in New Jersey. In any Brooklyn, case, it took Brooklyn. a name. They want Brooklyn. Okay, you know, so they want people to think it was uh, Dutch, and you know, as a result of that, they're able to charge a premium. Um, and you know, so people thought they were getting some exotic Dutch ice cream, and you know, in fact, they're getting it from Brooklyn, New York. And, and so, and this is all. This is all. This isn't news. We find this in economics textbooks, but it, but it's a reason that we should be hesitant to believe the free market rhetoric that we hear so frequently. Because it's really not how mar it's really not how the firms are. That's right. Uh, you know, the, we're very, very far from that. And you know, it, it, it's I think it's been long the case, and I think in many respects it's getting much worse. And you know, again, I'll, I'll beat up on Al Gore and uh, you know the the uh, cable networks. I mean, to my mind, that just is such an extreme example that here's here's a case where you know, granted that it would be worth something, even if you know cable companies were charging very little. The fact that you know Al Gore had gone out and put together, that would be worth something because you'd have to pay someone to do that, but it wouldn't be $500 million. These, again, are government creations. These monopolies are government franchises granted a couple decades ago now, and they can't be ungranted, apparently. I mean, there's an argument, for instance, for um, having a basic government municipal cable company that people could buy as a kind of baseline competitor for the big cable companies, but that's not going to happen. Well, cable would be a little hard because I don't know if you would literally want someone to string up parallel lines. Right, um, so, right. So that would that would be an issue. Something like Internet, I think, it does make good sense. Yeah. You know, and again, this is, this is one of the things that, you know, we just haven't had serious discussions of because, again, it's not a question of being hostile to the market or the private sector. The point is that oftentimes something might be better done uh, um, as and provide as a public good, and you know, internet probably is a good example in the sense that you know you get uh, internet over the insofar as we're getting over the airwaves, um, pay for it up front, and you know why make a big point? We want people to have access to it, so why make a big point of charging people whatever nickels and dimes you know we'd, we'd want to charge them? Why not just pay for it up front, let it be available free, and save all this money in the collection process? Well, and the one of my favorite example for that is there should be an ATM in every post office that connects to the Fed, and you should have a Fed bank account which clears checks and allows you to make deposits and withdrawals. That's no reason for us to not provide those basic banking services since the Fed clears all those checks anyway. Yeah, you know, again, that's something, you know, fees have been going up uh, for basic uh, uh, accounts, basic checking and other banking services over the last two or three decades. And as a result of that, you have a lot of people that, you know, they don't have bank accounts. So if you could provide these services through the post office, as is done in other countries and was done to a limited extent in the United States, um, that would be a great service to people. And, again, you're not going to arrest banks for providing the service. So at least no one I know would propose that. The point is give people an option. Right, and just as the Postal Service served as a created an opportunity for FedEx, and FedEx creates a bar that the Postal Service has to meet, you'd have actually be introducing competition rather than restricting it. 
Exactly, and you know, I think that's a good way to go. In every other government-provided service, you're not, you know, you wouldn't look to say, okay, we're not going to let the private sector compete. We're just, you know, we're just going to, you know, give someone, give people an opportunity uh, to take advantage of a government service, which maybe they think is better. Maybe they don't. You know, they could vote with their feet. Maybe, maybe they don't. Maybe it's just cheaper. It sucks, but it's cheaper. And if you want something better, then you pay more. That was the mantra about the post office in 1975 when FedEx was growing, but. It's interesting that the people who who would oppose such such an idea of having basic government government provide basic services say that they'd have an unfair advantage. These are the same people who say the free market always yields the best possible outcome. So it's kind of, it's kind of hard to reconcile those two views. Yeah, it's it, it, you know, and this comes up very much. We were talking a second ago about the post office. It comes up very much exactly that context that you know the post office, of course, is in a bad financial situation. A lot of that is just accounting games. But part of that is, you know, clearly, you know, the dynamics of first-class postage, which is their bread and butter, are changing. You know, we have all these bills being paid online, which is great. I mean, you know, I make people send things through the mail if they can do it online. But the Postal Service has been prevented from diversifying, getting into other sectors, the way in which any other company would, would act. So, you know, you get the private sector, private firms holding this up as, here's an example of government efficiency. No, here's an example where you guys have hamstrung an industry and made it almost impossible for them to operate profitably, and yeah, you succeeded in that. And you know, who doubts that? You know, if we picked any sector, you know, if we picked Microsoft and we said, hey, you know, you can never move into anything beyond your basic operating systems, well, I think pretty soon they would be in trouble. They might be in trouble anyhow, but you know, certainly if the government had made a point hamstringing uh, the company so that they couldn't take advantage of that that system and move into other areas. Um, they would eventually see declining market share and declining profits and probably go out of business. Well, if you told FedEx they couldn't have computers in their shops and they couldn't use PDF transmissions and they couldn't you know, use any kind of electronic services, they too would go on, on, out of business because things are changing in the delivery of documents business as well. Um, exactly. Now, there's a couple more things in the theory of the firm I wanted to get to. One of them is um, a word we see used frequently when we're re reading about how current businesses operate, and that is rent pursuit and rentiers. Um, I'm seeing that a lot in, on the web, and I think a lot of people may not really know what we're talking about when we say it, but it's become kind of a buzzword, and I'd really appreciate taking a moment to explain what an economist means by rent and what people mean about when they talk about rent-seeking. Well, rent means you're, in effect, sort of taking advantage of your position in a way where you could extract more money from your customers typically in ways that aren't in any way helping the economy. And probably the simplest example I could give of this is if we think of a, a, a drug company that they've already developed their drug. So, you know, think of uh, Viagra or uh, I shouldn't necessarily pick on that, but you know, Rogaine. Rogaine's a good thing to pick. No, no, I, I want to pick it could even be a drug that, you know, is very useful in terms of, you know, extending life, improving people's health. You know, it, it doesn't matter. The point is that they already had the expenditures for developing that drug. Now suppose they go, Hey, we could raise our prices by twenty, thirty percent, we can get the insurers to pay it. Why not do that? That's a classic case of rent seeking because they would, would have made a profit that could bring it to the market. They've already paid for the research, so that's moot. They always talk about their research, and there's an argument about that, but at the point they're selling the product, the research is already paid for. That's history. It's done. So, so that's pure rent-seeking. So they, they could have made a profit selling these drugs for you know, $50 a prescription, $100 a prescription, but they go, hey, we, could, we can get the insurers to pay $200. let us just charge extra money. So it's a classic case of rent-seeking. It's also a classic illustration of how price equals marginal cost is now how it works in the real in the real world of economics. That's right. I mean, in, in you know, in the case of prescription drugs, uh, price typically bears almost no relation to marginal cost. The marginal cost is you know basically what you would pay for the generic drugs because generic drugs as a group are are no different than than uh, branded drugs. And you know, typically you can go to a chain drugstore and get generics for six, seven, eight bucks a prescription. Um, the brand drugs that you might pay hundreds of dollars, even thousands of dollars per prescription, on average, they're no more costly to produce and bring to the store than the generic drugs. The reason they charge so much more is because they have a patent monopoly, and that allows them to, to make much more money on each, each prescription they sell. And just to digress just for a moment, um, and frequently the basic research that was done that the drug company eventually exploited was government-funded research done by the health pro by the NIH or other health agencies. 
almost invariably you find that the government contributed a substantial portion of the research. So typically the drug company will have done sort of the, the tail end research, they'll have done the clinical trials, which, which are costly, um, but very often uh, a large portion of the research in the development of the drug was done directly by the federal government, uh, or, or I should say uh, under federal money. Usually the federal government doesn't do it directly, they're contracting Contracts with out, people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and in fact, to digress just a little bit longer, you write about that. That's one of the topics you discuss in The End of Loser Liberalism. And you argue that the, gov the government should just take this to the end with the compound be completely developed or pay the contractors to do the, the clinical testing as well and have the drugs be sold at their actual production cost. Yeah, and that's important not just because we get cheaper drugs and save a huge amount of money. People should understand there's an enormous amount of money at stake here because we spend close to $300 billion a year on prescription drugs that would probably cost us about $30 billion a year absent the patent monopoly. So that gap, $270 billion a year, is about 2% GDP. And, you know, we, we talk about in budget terms over the decade. If, if we looked at that gap over a decade, we're probably talking about $4 trillion. So that's real money there. But on top of that, there's also an issue of, you know, what about our health? What about the quality of our medical care? Well, drug companies, because they could sell these drugs for hundreds of dollars or even thousand dollars of prescription, they have an enormous incentive to misrepresent the effectiveness and safety of their drugs. And they do it all the time. It's exactly what economic theory would predict. They do it all the time. They say this drug is perfectly safe, it's totally effective, when very often their own research suggests otherwise. And as a result of that, we're often not getting the best drug for our, our, our health condition sometimes even getting drugs that are harmful for us. And, you know, there's always a case where that all happen by accident, but these are cases where it's done on purpose because drug companies want to make more profit. Right. And the last thing I want to touch on in this firm area and the government's role in the private, in private sector is that what we read about when we were kids reading this stuff about economics was that the government should play a role in reducing transaction costs that one of the things the government can do is make it easier for transactions to take place by, by, you know, for, by setting up regulations, by setting up rules, by setting up standards. And that's something we seem to have lost as well. Uh, it seems like the financial sector, which is supposed to be a support element of our economy, not supposed to be a productive element of our economy, is becoming more and more, not, is becoming more and more friction-filled rather than frictionless. Yeah, in principle, what we'd like is, you know, a simple financial sector, a transparent financial sector, uh, products that are well understood and, and cheap. And uh, that's not often what we get. So you get ever more complex instruments, you know, credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations. Obviously, people have made a lot of money on these. But in terms of the financial sector actually fulfilling its its purpose, and I don't mean in you know, sort of in a moral sense, I just mean sort of in an economic sense, it's very hard to see how this has really helped the financial sector do that. So the financial sector's purpose, I want to put money in the in savings for, you know, my kids' education, my retirement. I want to be able to do that at little risk, low cost as possible. If on the other side I'm looking to borrow money for, for my own education or buying buying a house or starting a business, again I want to be able to do that as quickly as possible, as low cost as possible. I think you'd be very hard pressed to say the financial sector is doing that better today than it did three or four decades ago, but it's costing us much, much more. So the financial sector is taking about five times as large a share of the economy today as it did back in the 70s. So we're paying a lot more for it. It's very hard to see what we're getting in terms of more output from that sector. But we're seeing the participants in that sector at what we were calling rent sinking a little bit ago, trying to create <laughs> scarcity. Well, exactly. The rent seek in a variety of different ways, and probably uh, the, the best example here is the, the case of uh, high-frequency trading, where you have people that are trading, um, you know, in milliseconds, literally, you know, just uh, you know, fra tiny fractions of a second. What's going on there is they develop sophisticated computer algorithms where they could detect large movements in, in the market and move in ahead of those movements. It's really almost like insider trading. So well, front running. I think it's straight up front running. I mean, that's yeah, that, that's basically what it is. That's, that, that's basically what it is. So, so you have, you know, a big investor. Let's say you have a Warren Buffett or someone or a pension fund, and they've decided they suddenly want to get rid of a large chunk of General Electric. They could detect that movement, and they jump in ahead, and they sell General Electric ahead of the, you know, the big investor. 
So they, they get you know they get advantage of the higher price and then they could buy it back at a lower price. They get advantage of that rather than the big investor. And you know they've added nothing to the market in terms of providing information because you know Warren Buffett or the other big investor they're going to be there a second later anyhow. Right, and they're and they're all they're adding is noise, and it's easy to fix this. All you do is impose a transaction tax, a small transaction tax, and the high frequency trading goes away. That's right, because the profits depend on you know moving quickly. And even though you know you're only making a very very small amount on a share, you do that ten times a day. That's an awful lot of money. But just, if you have even a modest tax, you could eliminate that margin, so it no longer makes sense for the person well, who's holding the stock for five or ten years. Couldn't care less. You won't even see it. Right. All you're doing is increasing the spread, so the high frequency trading can't work. That's right. When you put impose a tax. All right. So that's what I wanted. To, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of basics thing, but the. Summary to all this is the government's role is one that's quite large, even in what's considered to be by uh, people who talk about the marketplace, um, a free market economy. They actually have a competitive market for goods and services. You need government intervention all over the place. It's the only way it would work. Exactly. Government has to set the framework, and if it doesn't, you know, basically stand up and do that, then you end up with corrupted markets. And you know, I think unfortunately that's what we're seeing in a lot of different places. Right. We're seeing it, and we're seeing the mechanisms we talked about for creating monopolies, creating um, information, hiding information, creating rents, doing things that prevent the economy from running smoothly, and from consumers being able to make purchases in. It, with the confidence that they're getting what they're paying for and what they're paying for results from competition. That's not happening now because the government's failing to provide an effective framework. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, again, it, it becomes self-perpetuating because obviously those who are profiting from that situation resist, uh, you know, with all their with all their wealth and power, any efforts to, to reverse that path. And, you know, we see that very well in the financial sector. Where I mentioned that because, you know, there obviously was the effort of financial reform following the collapse in 2008. And, you know, although there's some useful things in, in Dodd-Frank, I don't think anyone can really stand up with a straight face and say that that really fundamentally changes the nature of the financial industry. In fact, the, the large banks are bigger than ever. So um, it's, you're very hard-pressed to see how we've had any fundamental change in spite of, you know, really a catastrophic disaster, um, you know, and uh, basically the industry goes on pretty much as it was. Right, even though we have a solution that was working very well for a couple of generations, that is Glass-Steagall. Well, Glass-Steagall, and we had all sorts of restraints on the banking system. I mean, uh, the 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 rise of these large banks is actually a new phenomenon because to a large extent we had prohibited even interstate banking, right. you know, until the 80s. Um, which I'm not to say that, you know, that's all bad. I'm not going to say all the regulations we had you know, put in place back in the 30s, we'd want to keep today. But the point was we had a lot of regulations in place that prevent the sort of huge mega banks that, that we see now. And the consolidation, you know, these very, very large banks, that really is a very, very new story. So, you know, people think somehow they've been there for all time. Um, no, I mean, this is this is really a new story of the last two decades. Very recent, yeah. And to the, to the point where HSBC can literally launder money for drug dealers and terrorists, and there is no... Nothing that can be done about it. Yeah, I mean, for, for people who might not be familiar, the Justice Department top officials, the Attorney General, said that we may not bring actions against banks because we worry that, you know, if we were to do so, it could jeopardize the stability of the financial system. Now, frankly, I think they're exaggerating that in the sense that I don't believe the financial system is that unstable, but it doesn't matter what I think. The point is, if it's really the case that the Justice Department and certainly the Attorney General are in a position to know, if the Justice Department isn't bringing cases because they're worried that somehow it will you know, disrupt the financial system, well, that's saying you're basically giving banks a license to break the law, which is, you know, to my mind, just how could you justify saying a bank could be so large that they could break the law with impunity because we can't punish them? You don't even have to be that big. I mean, John Corzine's still sitting in the sun. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, that, that, I think, has more to do with political power, pure and simple, than... Uh, indeed. Indeed. But it's still pretty brazen. And, yeah. And nothing's happening. Um, so I want to turn more specifically to the profession's role in, in this and how it is being perceived by people and, in fact, how... And I don't know intellectually sound it is. And that brings us to macro kind of issues. We've been talking about microeconomic issues, really. I mean, we've talked about some public policy in the macro sphere, but mostly we've been talking about getting markets to work in individual product sectors. In 
the macro world where we're talking about the economy as a whole, there has been there has been this kind of changing way of looking at things that took place again in the late 70s, early 80s, where um, Robert Lucas said that the models that economists were using, macroeconomists were using, Keynesian macroeconomists were using, were failing to recognize that people were reading the models and responding to them. That is, that's called the Lucas critique, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and there are two ways. I mean, obviously you had a point in the sense that you had models where you, you had people that were in effect being systemically fooled, and specifically the logic was that you had models that said people didn't realize that they didn't pick up on rates of inflation increasing, and therefore they were fooled by the rate of inflation. And Lucas said, well, no, people could pick up a newspaper and see that you know, inflation is increasing. And that, that argument is, of course, white. Now, that was a particularly simplistic type of argument that he was criticizing. So it was a valid criticism directed against a particularly simplistic type of argument. So for what we really thought was going on in sort of the traditional Keynesian story of how monetary policy could boost the economy was that we're able to trick people about the rate of inflation. Well, Lucas was absolutely right. You know, if that was what was going on, people could pick up a newspaper and they'll no longer be tricked. Well, let's, now, let's be fair for a second, though, because Keynes does talk a fair amount about money illusion, about people being fooled by increases in their nominal income when their real income is not going up. But he also says that within small bounds, within reasonable bounds, workers don't care so much about the real wage. He's very explicit about this. He says uh -huh. what matters to them is the relative wage. So he says, on the one hand, if an employer were to go to his workers, his or her workers, and say, hey, you're all getting a 5% pay cut, they'd go, wait a second, that's not fair. You can't do that to us because they don't see everyone else getting a 5% wage cut. On the other hand, if that's brought about through inflation, not saying a single year, but over the span of two or three years, then they might be willing to live with that. So he, he actually has a very explicit discussion of this. So, so it's not as though he was saying, you know, workers are going to be fooled. He's saying that they care about relative wages. And when, when a firm cuts uh, their own workers' pay, that's a cut in their relative wages, not just a cut in real wages. And this critique turned into something called the different names for it, rational expectations, uh, the new classical economics, and ultimately the real business cycle economists. But all of them were saying that there were no agents in the macro models that, uh, that were traditionally used by Keynesian analysts, right? There were no people there. And they in tried to construct... No, no. The, the Sergeant Sergeant Prescott, those people, were trying to introduce agent agented models, overlapping generation models with actual agents being affected by what was going on in the economy. That is, they were trying to explicitly address Lucas's critique by putting people into the models. At least that's what they said. Well, it were certainly people in Keynes' model. Now, now they, were, they were having people do different things, I think would probably be the best way to put it. So Thanks. I think that would be the biggest difference, you know, that they, they had been responding to, to events in the economy, responding to the government in ways that, at least in the models that we had, say, in the, the 50s and 60s, they didn't. And so the idea of policy actions being credible or not credible, and the idea that inflations can only work if they were accelerating inflations were arguments that uh, these guys were making. Right, and the key was not just accelerating, but unexpected. So, right, unexpected so that, was the key, yes. Yeah, yeah, so that, that was the point. So, so expected policy um, had no impact on the economy. It was only unexpected shocks that would have an impact. That was, that was the rational expectation view. And that turned into the real business cycle groups who said, whatever the structural economy is at the time is what it is. Markets have cleared all factors of production are allocated correctly because markets always do that. And the only thing that can happen is a shock to the economy. That is, you could have a large Arab, you could have a large oil embargo, for instance. That's right. So, so the real business cycle school said that it wasn't uh, it wasn't government policy that would cause uh, a recession. It was, in effect, um, something bad happened, reduced workers' productivity. Oil shock being a good example, and. What that meant is that workers that previously had been willing to work because they see that the real wage is now falling, they opt not to. So, so they're not even unemployed in that story in the sense that they want to find a job and they can't find a job. What goes on in a recession in, in the real business cycle models is that workers see that the wage has fallen by 2 or 3% and they go, well, for 2 or 3% lower wage, I'd rather sit at home and watch TV. Right, and all, all unemployment is voluntary in this model. And what, has, right. and what has to happen is market forces have to adjust the factors of production distribution to reflect the new structural economy. 
that's been changed by this exogenous shock. Exactly, and you know, it's it's not even it's not even necessarily a bad thing. So you look at a period where you have high unemployment, and it's not people made a decision. I was being cryptic with saying they're watching TV. I mean, um, uh, one of the the leader leading promoters of this uh, Prescott is at University of Minnesota wrote a famous article called "Time to Build," and what what the argument is that okay, you know, my labor is worth less. I used to get twenty dollars an hour. Now I can only get nineteen fifty. So rather than go and work for 19.50 an hour, I'm going to fix up my home, do other things that, you know, have value to me. Um, I'm not suffering. So the unemployment rate, you know, we might look at our unemployment rate, it goes from 5% to 7% or whatever it might be, and that might look really bad, but really what's going on is you just have these people that say, well, I'll do work around the house or do some other things. I won't be in the paid labor force for a period of time because it's not worth it to me. Right. Or also you know, the, the transaction costs. Of, of, of obtaining a new profession or doing something else can sometimes be high enough that you're willing to wait for the structural economy to change and return to the labor force when you when you can. And what they're really saying, though, is there's no such thing as unemployment in the current definition of unemployment. There's in and out of the labor force. Exactly, exactly. So, so these people, we'd be wrong to think of those people as suffering. They've made a decision that, you know, given what they could earn, they would rather do other things with their time. And this is, you know, right down the line from, you know, the the Milton Friedman school of choice of of the freedom to choose and people choosing wisely and choosing in their own interest and the state not having any role in dictating what that choice should be. Um, but the trouble is that this theory, and then now I'm looking at this as a purely academic thing. It really can't be tested, as far as I can tell. Well. Uh, you know, the, the question is, do we do we think that the people, you know, in principle, the, the people who are unemployed during the downturn should be at most just trivially worse off than they, they were during the upturn. So, you know, if we go back to, you know, thinking of the U.S. economy, if we go back to 2007 when the unemployment rate was 4.5% and we had all these people working and then two years later they're unemployed, or at least a lot of them are unemployed, it, it should be relatively trivial difference because basically, you know, they're they're they could in principle still be working if they were only accept maybe a five percent pay cut, which no one would be happy about, but that wouldn't ruin your life. On the other hand, we certainly have a lot of people who looked like they were having their lives ruined. Right. So, so, you know, do you want to say that's strictly testable? How do we really test? The, I don't know if we could find you know like a air airtight test of that, but I think you know, well, the real question is you have to believe that. Those people are just sort of moderately worse off 2009 when they were all unemployed than they were two years earlier when they were employed. I guess I'm saying something more philosophy of science kind of thing. I'm saying that one of the things that makes something a useful theory is that you can test to see whether it's true or not by predicting outcomes and seeing whether or not those outcomes arise. We'll talk about that a little bit later in terms of you know who predicted correctly what would happen in this economy. Um, with the zero lower bound affecting defending what public policy should be, but if you're saying that all unemployment is structural, if you're saying that um, everything that happens is the result of a shock, there is no way to construct a, a test for whether or not that theory is true because that theory doesn't leave itself open for generating refutable hypotheses that you can test. Well, you do have, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you could always find a way to reconcile any theory with any set of facts in the world, but one way you could sort of test that is what we've actually done. In principle, when you get the government trying to intervene in the economy, say trying to stimulate the economy, as in fact it did, that shouldn't have any effect in, you know, in their world because there's, there are, you know, the real problem is that we don't have the resources, you know, we are resource constrained, we don't have the resources to give these people a high enough wage to make it worth their while to, to, to work. Right. I mean, the right. only way we could do that is by taxing other people. Yeah, they would claim you any know. intervention would actually make things worse. They yeah, would, yeah. It, it, would, it would slow down the rate of structural adjustment. The market clearing, the structural adjustment wouldn't happen because of intervention. And so it would make things worse. It would mean the growth rate is lower. And it would have to be the growth rate they're talking about. They can't be talking about anything else because they don't consider unemployment a policy goal. That's right. So, so, so we should be able to show that countries that did try to act aggressively to counteract the downturn did worse than the countries that didn't act. 
And we should also, and now we have some evidence in point of fact, that if um, the reaction to a downturn was to uh, contract in order to, to pursue some other policy goal like reducing debt holdings, that that actually does harm. Well, certainly it seems, you know, the, the evidence of that certainly seems pretty clear at this point that the countries that had the largest contractions, uh, largest deficit reduction, um, saw the largest increases in unemployment or the biggest hit to growth, whereas countries that tried to stimulate had the most growth. I think we have to focus on growth because they're claiming that unemployment's not a policy objective. Yeah, well, we should focus on growth. I mean, you know, take whichever you want. Well, I, I mean, the reason why growth is a little bit problematic is there are differences. I mean, you could adjust for that. Per capita growth would be what you'd want. Right, right. And, and it hasn't worked. I mean, you know, England has adopted these policies, and it hasn't increased growth, and it hasn't even reduced what they considered an approximate policy goal of the debt, of reducing debt. It hasn't done that either. That's right. That's right. They have very little to show. Um, well, I should say very little. They have nothing to show. Right. For this policy. And, and that leads to... Whether or not we're talking about the theory being true or not, what we can talk about whether policies are effective or not. And the policies that are stemming from the real business cycle point of view have not been successful, as successful as policies taken from the Keynesian point of view with respect to A, growth, which was considered a policy objective, and with respect to B, debt reduction, which was intended to be a short-term way in which to achieve a longer-term policy objective of growth, Right. That's right. So, you know, if you look at, you, you mentioned UK, but also uh, the Southern European countries, Ireland, uh, you know, Latvia, the, the Baltic countries, all these countries have been very aggressive in trying to cut their budget deficits. And in all cases, it's resulted in large increases in unemployment, uh, little or no growth, um, generally negative growth, recessions. And uh, in terms of the debt, they've made very little progress because the basic story is if you, if you cut your deficit, uh, you end up uh, getting you know, your, your economy shrinks, you collect less in tax revenue, you're paying out more in unemployment benefits and other transfers, you don't end up getting much by way of deficit reduction. Now, the exogenous shock in this case um, was what, according to Well, you? this again creates a problem for their view. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically, the, the exogenous shock, you, it wasn't anything in the real economy. There was nothing that you could identify happened to the, to the world in 2008. You know, it wasn't that we suddenly had bad crop failures or we suddenly ran short of oil. Uh, the, the exogenous shock was a collapse of uh, financial bubbles in, in the U.S. and Europe. Um, that's clearly what set this off. So... Um, you know, basically, you had a shock from the financial sector, which disrupted the real economy. And again, this is not supposed to happen. And there's nowhere in the literature about endogenous shocks, is there? No. Again, the whole point is that they would be exogenous. The problem, right. once you allow for an endogenous shock, you pretty much, uh, you know, have to throw out most of the theory because it, it really that that would imply that there's a large role for the government because if an endogenous shock could have a big effect, then that would mean the government has a big role in trying to prevent those shocks or ameliorating them when they occur. Or or perhaps they're the source of them because, <laughs> I mean, when it's endogenous, it's endogenous in the policy regime that's being adopted by the government, right, right. in terms of right. regulatory authority over the financial institutions. I mean, I find, right. I find that reminds me of Summers' rejoinder. Summers once said that uh, somebody said Keynes, would, quoted Keynes saying, in the long run we're all dead, and Summers replied, but death is endogenous to the model. Yeah. Um, well, this has been kind of amusing because that 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 whole quote that that that's come up in that context um, these debates that people were talking about Keynes didn't care about the long run. In fact, his whole the point of that comment, the long run we're all dead, was he was saying that if all economics could do is make predictions about the long run and not say anything about sort of the here and now, it's not of much use. Which right. is kind of interesting point um, and uh, different from the way that's often taken. No, what he's saying is do something, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get, get your thumbs out of wherever you have your thumbs. And But this, but I, I guess I want to close by talking about this policy debate that should be happening now and doesn't seem to be. I mean, Brad DeLong and I talked about this about 18 months ago where he said what the, neo, the new Keynesians thought they were doing was engaging into an intellectual discussion with the new classical folks about what government policies work and what government policies don't. And that there was kind of a consensus that monetary policy was keeping both sides happy um, up until this period, up until the period where we came up against a zero lower bound. 
But now that it's been clearly demonstrated that the new classical views are wrong, um, they're not fessing up and saying so. No. Um, you know, I, I'd probably be a little uh, more critical than Brad of the mainstream of the profession even before this. But, you know, the the argument here was that, uh, you know, okay, there are some points that uh, Lucas and his followers made uh, critical of uh, the old uh, Keynesian, you know, 60s, 70s Keynesian synthesis, and they did try to take that into account. So you had this whole school of new Keynesian economics that tried to take into account rational expectations where you had people in your models acting as though they, they knew the models. So, so you didn't have, we weren't sitting there as economists saying we have all these stupid people out there. So right. the, the, in, in principle, the people in the model had all, access to all the information, uh, people writing the models, which you know, is probably a reasonable thing to assume in general. At least something, if, if it's important, they'll figure it out. Um, and so, so they made a lot of changes, and you know, people like Brad and I think a lot of others were assuming, okay, this is on both sides that you know we're we're looking at evidence, we're changing our theories, suggesting them where it looks like they're they're incomplete, they don't fit the evidence, or you know they're theoretically limited. And now it turns out, well, no, these guys were never really got engaged in an honest debate. Now I'd be a little more critical of Brad of the mainstream because you know he he's very quick to say, and I think he is to this day. I won't put words in his mouth, but my understanding is he'd probably still say that up till 2008, monetary policy was adequate. And I would be a little more skeptical because I go back, I look back at the the crash, you know, the recession following the crash in 2001, the stock market crash, and the view of you know most economists was, oh, we dealt with that just fine. And I look at that and go, well, actually, I don't think we dealt with that just fine because it took us three years to start creating jobs again. We didn't start creating jobs again until the fall of 2003. So even though it was a relatively mild downturn in terms of you know, how much did the economy sink and the official length of the recession was just seven months, we went from March of, of 2001 till September of 2003 before we started creating jobs again. And in terms of monetary policy being effective, we had the federal funds interest rate at 1%. That's where the ECB had their interest rate, and people like Brad were talking about them being up against a zero lower bound. So if the European Central Bank was up against a zero lower bound with a 1% interest rate, that would seem to me that the Fed was up against a zero lower bound when we had a 1% interest rate back in 2002, 3, and 4. So I don't think monetary policy was sufficiently effective to get the economy back on its feet following the collapse of the stock bubble. So I don't think this was something that just became a problem in 2008. It might be that people like Brad just noticed it in 2008. <laughs> but but uh, I think it had been a problem previously. Now, I want to just pull one point out of this that you just said. You said that we didn't get back on our feet as quickly as we could have. What you mean by that is we were underutilizing factors of production, both capital and labor factors of production, putting us on a lower long-term growth path. Exactly. We could have done more to boost the economy 2001, 2002, 2003 than we did. And the idea that we just bounced back quickly, I think, is just wrong. And unemployment's not approximate. It may be approximate goal, but it's still the ultimate goal to get higher rates of growth. We're wasting resources when people are unemployed. We're wasting resources when there's excess capacity. That's right. So, so you're just, you know, you have. We could be producing things. We could be taking advantage of of resources that we have that we're not because the demand's not there. Could build labs and schools, for instance. We could have the equivalent of a CCC program. We could do something to call out labor from the marketplace and move us up to a higher rate of growth by employing them to make productive goods that they otherwise would not be doing. They'd be sitting around watching TV and not happy about it either. Exactly, exactly. That's the point. There was a really interesting bit from, uh, I'm spacing his name, Danny Roderick, who talked about a number of things that's right and wrong in economics. And he's doing this for the world, and it's an interview for the World Economic, I'm sorry, the World Economic Association. Danny says, years earlier, when I wrote my monograph, Has Globalization Gone Too Far? I'd been surprised at some of the reaction along similar lines. I expected, of course, that many policy advocates would be hostile. But my arguments were, or so I thought, based solidly on economic theory and reasoning. But a distinguished economist wrote back saying, quote, you are giving ammunition to the barbarian. In other words, I had to exercise self-censorship lest my arguments were used by protectionists. 
The immediate question I had was why this economist thought barbarians are only on one side of the debate. Was he unaware of how, for example, multinational firms hijacked pro-free trade agreements to lobby for such agreements, such as intellectual property, that had nothing to do with free trade? Has the profession become populated by people who are in service to something other than what's right and true? Well, uh, I'd have to say that's that certainly is the case. And you know, the the example he used, I was really glad to see that actually, uh, of you know, intellectual property in terms of free trade, um, 100% on the mark. So. It's one of the things that you know I take economists to task for all the time. We talk about a 10 or 20 percent tariff on imported clothes or steel. They'll jump up and down and yell and scream and go, "What you know? What planet are you a Neanderthal?" Literally, I mean, they go, "You know, we all know how stupid that is." Go, okay, okay, okay. On prescription drugs, we're not talking about 20, 10 or 20 percent. We're talking about hundreds of a percent, thousands of percent. You know, we're talking about taking drugs that would cost five, ten bucks in a free market and selling them for $500, $1,000. What do your theories say about that? Well, you could use the exact same model, except that the cost would be many orders of magnitude greater. And when I raise this with them, I don't know how many times I get economists have a look at me and go, but drugs are expensive to research. And I go, I understand that. That's not the issue. They were already researched at the point you're selling them. That's some cost. This is all stuff in Economics 101. Now, PhD, you know, the professors at Harvard and Princeton will look at me like they don't know what what I'm what what I'm talking about. So yeah, I think they very much become in the service of the rich and powerful, and that means willing to ignore what often are very simple and basic economic principles. And I guess the last thing that I wanted to talk about, what I call R squared, Rogoff, Rogoff, and um, Reinhardt. That's a good book, by the way. You should read it. But I call them R squared. And uh, that's, folks, just it's an inside joke. R-squared is a measure of uh, effectiveness of a model to fit. But what R-squared demonstrated was something that I think should be very disturbing. And it's not so much that they made a mistake. It's that they didn't publish their data for so long. And when a physicist or a chemist does an experiment, he publishes his data along with the article. The Internet's here now. It's not hard to distribute the data you're using. Yeah, this, this really speaks volume uh, both for them personally and for the profession. They first... Their first, their work first had a big impact as the National Bureau of Economic Research working paper. And my reason for saying that wasn't refereed, which isn't necessarily that big a bar, but it just means someone in principle went over your work, checked it, and at least vouched for it. Now, as I say, it's not always that big a bar because referees aren't paid generally. They're not always that attentive. So a lot of bad things get into referee journals. But, but the, it, it, when you make something a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper, you're just saying, okay, I wrote this, and you put it up on the web. It's fine, except it suddenly got you know, taken seriously all over the world almost immediately. And I contacted them shortly thereafter. I have my emails from January 2010 uh, to both of them. They never responded. I asked for their data. You know, At that point, there was nothing available on their websites. Eventually, they did put some material up, and uh, they still didn't. Uh, it was impossible to reproduce their results, and it was only because you had this very persistent grad student at the University of Massachusetts who kept harassing them, and they finally shared their spreadsheet, and that's how we found the heirs. But, you know, again, they weren't following good practice in economics, but even worse was the fact that so many people within the profession weren't calling them on that, rather than saying, hey, you know, you're, you're making really big claims here, or it's influencing policy, and no one can reproduce them. That's, that's a serious problem. But no one was doing that. So, you know, it really speaks, I think, volumes for the profession. I blame them for not being more straightforward, but, again, uh, it shouldn't have just been a few sort of uh, people on the left who are raising these issues. It should have been the whole profession. Now, when this happens in the real sciences, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not defending the profession at all anymore on, this, on the idea that there are better science than sociology or social psych, um, what, people not just lose their jobs, but they're disgraced. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, what's been remarkable is how many people have kind of rallied behind them. You know, I, I know some fairly liberal members of the mainstream of the profession. They're saying, oh, you know, people are, you know, just being unreasonable, ha, 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 an Excel spreadsheet here. Well, we've all made mistakes. I made plenty of mistakes. But well, I would be really embarrassed if some paper I had written was the basis for policy in the United Kingdom and, and uh, the European Union and, you know, other places around the world was being held up. We, you know, look at this. And it turned out it was all based on a mistake I'd made. I mean, that is really serious. The idea in academia, especially in sciences, is that people reproduce results and make sure they're right. We don't want, I mean, you know, the guy in Baltimore would get into a deep 
deep trouble because he, he cooked HIV research, for example. David Baldwin yeah. is his name. Yeah, and and, in and, this case, and rightly so. Yeah, yeah. You you don't want this is a hundred percent preventable accident, and there was no reason at all for them. They have research assistants. This is why you know they didn't respond to me. Okay, they don't give a shit about me. That's fine, but. You know, I know they're both busy people, but they have research assistants. All I had to do was have, you know, one of them take a few minutes and, and, and send me the data. It couldn't have been that hard. You know, their, their response, well, maybe they didn't have informed this and that. Well, why didn't you make a point of saying that at the time? You know, because, again, they, none, neither of them were naive. They knew that their work was being taken very seriously by people in policymaking positions. They knew that. So, you know, they could have raised the flag themselves. I mean, hey, 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 you know, don't. You know, we haven't gotten this out. We want people to check it. You know, wait till we've had more time. They could have done that. Instead, they're running around the world speaking, collecting fees. I don't know how much money they collect. I shouldn't put that in there. But it they doesn't were matter. It doesn't right. matter. They're very visible figures promoting this view that they had evidence that high, high amounts of debt were going to lead to sharp slowdowns in growth. And it turned out they didn't have that evidence. But the people who were apologizing for them, and I don't think this critical spectrum matters either way, I think that really leads you to think that this is an endemic situation that people don't share their data, that there's cooking going on, that there's even cooking going on. Well, certainly sloppiness, not sharing the data, that is very common. How much cooking, I don't know. You know, and I'm willing to be generous to them in saying that they didn't do it on purpose, in part because it's just such a stupid thing to do, and I don't think either of them are stupid. So, you know, so, so I don't, I personally, I mean, I'm just saying, I personally don't think they did it on purpose. I think what probably happened was they got numbers they liked, and they said, hey, let's run with them. Right. And, you know, if it had been the case that they had the opposite results, suppose they'd come out and go, hey, look at that. You get to debt to, to GDP ratios above 90%. Your economy really takes off. Well, my guess is they'd have looked that over really carefully, you know, and, and they didn't give the scrutiny to, to their numbers that they would have had they come out differently because these were results that they found appealing. And that's, of course, the reason we have systems like statistical analysis to check ourselves to make sure we don't fool ourselves about something. And that's why we have peer review, to make sure we're not fooling ourselves. We're not doing it because we're malicious or malevolent. I'm sorry, more malfeasant. We do it because we want to make sure we don't make mistakes. And it seems like the profession doesn't have a systematic methodology in place to prevent um, economists from publishing mistaken material. And that's really bad. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and as I say, this is not the first time that's happened. I mean, there's actually a very famous paper, Martin Feldstein. Um, oh, Social Security, the, Social Security, the Social Security paper? Exactly. Yeah, and that was amazing. I, I, I studied that in grad, undergrad, undergraduate school. It was amazing. I'm sorry, tell the story. He, this is when Martin Feldstein was very, uh, still a young economist back, I think it was in 73 or thereabout. He, right. he did this paper that he looked at the relationship between Social Security wealth and, and private savings. Basically, the idea was that if you knew you could count on Social Security when you retired, you'd save less during your working lifetime, which, which may well be true. I mean, I'm not even saying it's necessarily a wrong thing, but it turned out his result hinged on, on a statistical, uh, on an Aaron program. A, a really, that, it, it hinged on a really complicated variable he constructed, and published yeah. mechanisms that he used to construct this really complicated variable to represent Social Security wealth. And, yeah, and, and it turned out, I'm sorry, I asked you to explain this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, when, when it was corrected, it turned out his results were insignificant, so, so he, he didn't have a story to tell. Uh, that was found out, actually. He also did not share his data, and it was only found out because he was out of the country, and his research assistant, two researchers at the Social Security Administration, contacted his research assistant and done right. work on the paper, and she shared the programs with him. At that time, it was literally punch cards, I and mean, this was, you know, four right. days of, right. you know, personal computers. And they, they looked at them and they found the error. And then they corrected it and, you know, then you know, they published the corrected version and eventually owned up to it. Um, what's actually a remarkable part of the story that I don't think many people are aware of is he updated that back in, uh, I think, 93, yes. And he said, turned out I just needed more data. I was right all along. Um, I couldn't replicate his results. I had occasion I wanted to, to look at it. I mean, it didn't occur to me he made a mistake. I just was trying to do an extension of it. And I wanted to first make sure I'd done everything right. So I wanted to you know, replicate his, his results, and, you know, then I could work off of it and go, oh, suppose you do this, suppose you do that. I wasn't able to replicate his results, and I contacted him numerous times, um, talked to his assistant. Uh, he would not share his data. Wow. Um, so this was 20 years later, and eventually, um, I won't go through in great detail, I eventually got him to give me a bare minimum of information so I could realize I was, in fact, doing the methodology correctly, and he said in, in, in his letter, 
it doesn't surprise me that you can't replicate my results because savings data are subject to large revisions. So I was using revised data. He had you know, the data that had been published at the time before revisions, and when you revised the data, apparently the results went away, and he said that didn't surprise him. Of course, that didn't keep him from talking about his results. Um, wow. Wow. So, and of no, course, this, this, this is the chairman of the NDER we're talking about here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's pretty hard to see how that was ethical. And again, this is a case, I understand Martin Feldstein's a very busy, important person. He had a research assistant who actually told me he would share the data with me. He just needed Marty's permission, which he apparently didn't give. And that's what's most disturbing to me, is that it really looks like there are some very fundamental academic problems in the profession right now. For some reason, economists seem to believe that the ideas that people act in their own interest don't apply to them. They get angry when you suggest that, and it's and and it is quite striking, um, you know. And it just uh, you know you don't have to be terribly you know think horrible things about people, but you know we know what gets you tenure. You know you'll do research that's likely to get you tenure. Some research is more likely to get you in trouble. Um, and economists will actually tell their students that. I mean, you know, most of them you know they're not horrible people. So if they have a student, you know, an economist who's at Harvard or Princeton, you know, one of the top schools, and they have a student who they like and they want to see get a good job, they'll tell them, you don't want to do that type of research. That will get you in trouble. You'd rather do, you know, this research, that research. They know that, and they, they pass that on. So the idea that economists act in, you know, out of self-interest, you know, of well, course they do. <laughs> and, of course, they should think they do. And that's one of, Danny's, one of Danny's points is you shouldn't follow that advice. You should identify conventional wisdom because it's almost certainly become ossified and wrong. And that's a, yeah. good, that's a good research policy, I think. But you've got to be smart enough to be able to pull it off and rigorous enough to pull it off because if you say that something is wrong in conventional wisdom, you better have your your backup at ready to roll. Well, thank you, Dean. It's run a little longer than I wanted to, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, that, that cut off shorter than I expected. I'm sorry about that, folks. Thank you so much for, for joining us tonight here at Virtually Speaking. Um, it was a pleasure to have Dean on the air, and I'm sorry he couldn't be with us live, but he's uh, traveling, actually, this week. So thanks very much, folks, and uh, we'll see you next time. This is a public.